For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. On April 20th, journalist Ashley Vance was watching a SpaceX's Starship rocket lifted off from its launch pad in Texas. Yeah, I was uh, I was streaming that sucker like a lot of other people waiting to, to see what happened. What happened depends a bit on your point of view. At around three minutes and 40 seconds into the flight, the rocket seemed like it was spinning. We're seeing from the ground cameras the entire Starship stack continuing to rotate. We should have had separation by now. Obviously, this is uh, does not appear to be a nominal situation. But Ashley has been to rocket launches all over the world as part of the research for his book, When the Heavens Went on Sale. And he saw something different. For a new rocket like this, especially the world's largest rocket that's quite complicated, um, you know, not blowing up on the pad is a victory because that destroys a a lot of of hard work and you get no data from what's going on. Um, You know, it ended up flying about four minutes, which for a first rocket is actually pretty good. I, I think I've gone through almost every rocket launch that's happened, and I don't think anyone's made it with a new rocket on the the first attempt. As someone who just finished writing a book about this, when when you watched that moment, did you think that it was going to change public perception about private space flight, or did you think, like, meh, it's part of the process? I think it's part of the process. I mean, part of the thesis of my book is the public has kind of largely ignored what is actually happening all around them. I mean, this rocket is just one small part of of this commercial space revolution that is, is like well, well underway. And and SpaceX is is like the most dramatic force in this whole thing. Um, but whether that rocket explodes or not, there's there's more coming. So today on the show, the world of commercial spaceflight. You might think it's a story about billionaires and their toys, but you're wrong. I'm Lizzie O'Leary, and you're listening to What Next TBD, a show about technology, power, and how the future will be determined. Stick around. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank, USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. 
To understand why the commercial space industry took off, it's important to think about NASA in the early 2000s. The agency was devastated by the 2003 Columbia disaster, which killed seven astronauts. And Ashley says NASA became understandably risk-averse, less likely to take on wild, imaginative projects. I'm going to come off as a NASA basher here, (laughs) but uh, I mean, there were parts that were inspirational, but largely kind of depressing. I mean, definitely not the place people think of if they go back to the 1960s and the start of the the space race. You know, NASA would not have been in the 2000s, in the 2010s, the, the spot where super bright, energetic, ambitious young engineers wanted to go work necessarily. Why? Well, it's a funny thing. I mean, space carries with it all this, this obviously sort of like science fiction and the future and all, all this, this baggage. Um, and that existed in the 1960s. But then things largely did not change in many, many respects. The rockets were the same. The industry was a mix of NASA and governments and military contractors. And that that was the same story, whether you're in the US or, or Europe or Russia. And they tended to operate on very antiquated technology. And there had become this philosophy, especially when you're dealing with humans, and which is totally understandable. But, but even on these rockets that just carry satellites, that nobody wanted to be the person who made some new decision that caused a rocket to explode or a satellite to be lost. There was such a huge investment. We'd we'd sort of figured this thing out. And so there's very little progress made. It was kind of like, we got this figured out. Let's just not change things. I don't want to be the person that screws things up and takes takes a new risk. Do you think part of that was the, the legacy of the 2003 Columbia disaster? It was baked in before that even happened. I mean, this is going back to like the 1980s. Um, Post-Challenger? Yeah, the obviously losing humans on a on a shuttle explosion is going to make people rethink things and pull back. But this this was already sort of baked in to the system. I mean, I argue a little bit in the book that if you go back to like the 1920s, there were actually a number of rocket pioneers who were doing the equivalent of rocket startups in the U.S. and Russia and Germany, and and obviously it was early days and they were struggling a bit, but making progress and then i really think it was it was like world war 1 and then and then obviously world war 2 that turned this into this like national exercise this thing that only nations did and and you had to make the rocket huge and it had to be about people and you you had to be proving the merit of your country and its scientific strength and, and you couldn't have something go wrong and and so space sort of like went off on this this you know this path and and it's only now that we're kind of going back to the roots you write about Pete Warden and his work at NASA's Ames Center in in 2006 i wonder if you could talk about him and why you've you've described him as a sort of pivotal figure. He's an astrophysicist by training, a PhD in astrophysics, and then worked his way up to become a general in the Air Force. Over the years, he did things like the Star Wars Missile Defense Program. He ran some black ops projects for Rumsfeld and uh, and was always, I mean, he, he sort of, I just 
listed a resume that makes him sound like some hardline um, conservative, but he he's really kind of like an iconoclast in the government. He was always pushing NASA, the government writ large, uh, the military to sort of rethink things and, and act differently. He, as he climbed through the ranks, was probably almost fired about 18 times. And, <laughs> and he was actually fired for a black ops mission gone wrong by Rumsfeld and was sent to, to NASA Ames, which is the Silicon Valley NASA Center, and it was sort of just to kind of like put Pete Warden over to the side where he couldn't do too much damage and let him sort of ride off into the sunset. But he ends up playing this huge role in the rise of commercial space. So he he was behind the scenes, this guy in the government for decades who was pushing for small, cheap rockets, small, cheap satellites, stop doing things the way you've always done. Let's like revamp NASA. And so as I write about in the book, he he basically as the director of NASA Ames, gets to run this experiment where he says, okay, I'm going to bring in a ton of 20-something-year-olds and tell them all to try to do stuff cheaper and different than you've done before, and it, it worked. Those young people shared Warden's belief that moving fast and pushing past red tape could yield exciting results, though they did not exactly share his pro-military stance. There were a bunch of youngsters who were really kind of the opposite of Pete. I mean, these were these were 20-somethings who were against the militarization of space. They had written proposals for the United Nations to these effects and and they they end up at NASA Ames. I mean, Pete to his credit, even though he didn't think like them, he recruited them and you know, they always said they were working for Darth Vader, this guy <laughs> who had who had been doing the Star Wars program. Pete let them, he got them funding, he would put them in these like secret rooms where NASA headquarters couldn't find out what they were up to and and let them make things like super low-cost lunar landers, super cheap satellites, and, and really rethink an incredible amount about how we get to space and what we do when we're there. Why is he so pivotal in moving toward this series of small space startups? Well, he he was the guy who had this vision. I mean, the Department of Defense was trying to build these small, low-cost rockets for decades. There was this idea of something they call responsive space. And so it's now, many years later, we can see it with the Space Force. But there was this idea that it's another branch of the military. And if a conflict breaks out in Afghanistan, you send up a rocket the next day and you just plant a satellite over Afghanistan just watching everything. And people had tried to do this. The, the DOD largely just could not get out of its way. And Pete was the one writing papers, pushing people in this direction to try and figure this out. He ends up being the guy that secures funding for SpaceX's first rocket. He's the one that convinces the DOD to take a chance on Elon Musk and and then just keeps pushing that work more and more once he gets this, this NASA center to himself. It's impossible to talk about space right now without mentioning Elon Musk. After all, it was SpaceX that managed to create and fly a rocket cheaply. But Ashley doesn't spend all that much time dwelling on Musk or on other billionaire space enthusiasts like Jeff Bezos or Richard Branson. 
Elon sort of sets the the action in motion, and then he's like this figure that's looming over things. But um, well, you know, part of it is my thesis that we've moved sort of past the billionaires. I mean, we had this handful of governments that controlled space for about seventy years, and then we had a few very rich people take a crack at it. Elon's really the only one who succeeded out of that bunch, and then because of SpaceX venture capitalists all of a sudden decided, hey, we want to do space too. This looks real. And so all of this money flooded in. And what I saw was that that it was this fascinating, frenetic world that in, you know, for lack of a better term, to sort of mix uh territories, it was like the Wild West of space. I mean, this was not whatever you've you've been shown in movies of of like our best and brightest pilots and our most, you know This is not the right stuff. No, and it's not like the, you know, room full of MIT, PhD, solving a problem under pressure. You know, this is, this is like welders from Texas and high school dropouts and, and people from like racing teams who have flocked to this industry. And, and there is obviously still a few PhDs around, but it's a very different cast of characters. And it was that like underbelly that I really wanted to write about because it's, it's absolutely nuts. When we come back, how a guy in a tiny town in New Zealand started making rockets. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. One thing that's important to think about is just how hard it is to fly a rocket. Hundreds of small parts make up the craft, and if even one of them breaks or malfunctions, the whole thing can come down. Which is why some of the people running commercial space companies seem almost comically out of place. On the one hand, there's a guy named Peter Beck who was from New Zealand. He didn't even go to college. And he builds a company called Rocket Lab, which today is is like the second major commercial space player after SpaceX. They're really the only two that are flying all the time. And and this is something that would have been like impossible. Um even whatever, 15, 20 years ago, is this guy, no formal training in a country with no aerospace experience, no industry to lean on, gets a few 20-somethings of his own, and and they build a rocket, and then they build a bunch of rockets, and they're immensely successful. So that's kind of like, oh, maybe this is easy. (laughs) And there is, it's not easy, but it's like, there's a new method where it really did used to take nations to do this type of work. On the other side, I write about a company called Astra, which is trying to do something similar, although they want to make the cheapest 
most mass-produced rocket of all time, a rocket you could make every day and fly every day and that would cost about a million dollars. I was there with them from like day one to when they flew into space for the first time. And I show you in gory detail exactly how hard this is and how how space is, is it is exhilarating and it, it is sexy, but there's just there's a lot of like sort of struggle and tedium and and emotional swings that go with this. It's still a very, very hard thing to do. These companies are public companies. They've gone public, right? Rocket Lab's a public company. Um, actually, I think you were the person who kind of introduced Astra to the world in a in a Business Week story. What does that tell you about the kind of businesses they're running and and the kind of investors that they are courting, but also kind of how they see commercialization moving forward. Without question, we are trying to commercialize space. We are putting up, historically, there's been like 2,500 satellites in low Earth orbit. Over just the last two years, we've doubled that number to 5,000. In a decade, it's going to be 100,000, possibly 200,000 after that. So we're on this exponential curve. We're building a kind of computing shell around the planet. I think of this as like our next great technological infrastructure play. And, and that is happening. And we're going to take a crack at that no matter what. But when you take a step back, there's a lot of irrationality in this business. And, and a lot of these companies went public during the SPAC craze because why not? You could chase basically free money and and this is a very expensive enterprise space companies have almost always been private for a reason which is like we start just like we started talking about you do not want your share price hinging on the public's perception of of a rocket explosion and so you operate in secrecy and and you wait until you're successful to show people what's going on but the the lure of the money change that equation. And so hmm. it's been fascinating to watch these stock prices go up and down with people who largely don't realize what's going on. And then just just lastly, there's almost no money in actual rocket launches. There is money in satellites and data services. Well, that's kind of where I was going next, because we need to talk about the end goal here, right? You you also write about Planet Labs and and they're making small, cheap satellites. What what is the end goal for low Earth orbit? Is it is it just satellites? Is it satellites for big data purposes? Where is this going? The first two stages that have taken place and are happening right now are imaging the Earth. So Planet Labs makes these satellites that surround the Earth and take pictures, many pictures of every spot on the landmass every day. And so you can do basic things like count every single tree on the planet and then figure out what type of tree they are using AI software and how much carbon dioxide they're sucking down. So if you wanted, you could place actual sort of accounting systems around things like carbon credits. Um, you can look at your crops. Farmers use these satellites all the time hmm. to actually see how much chlorophyll is in their plants to know the best time to harvest, to get the best yield if the crops are are sick. So it's kind of this accounting system of the earth. The other major bucket here is communications. Data. The ability to provide internet in almost every area of the world. SpaceX, OneWeb, Amazon, they're all in the process of building the space internet system where you beam 
high-speed internet from space. And so half the world's population can't be reached by fiber optic cables today. So they immediately get access to, to the modern economy and, and life that lots of other people enjoy. And these are the first stages. This is where most of these satellites are going right now. The many, many, many trillion dollar question is like, once the price of rockets goes down, which is happening, the frequency goes up, which is happening, the satellites are more modern and cheap, which is also happening. Go back to like 1996 internet, do a bunch of clever people think up all kinds of new things to do in space. And that's like the only reason all of this makes sense in the long run and, and the investment checks out. These small satellites are not meant to have long lives. Planet Lab satellites are supposed to burn up when they come back to Earth. People probably will not love to hear this, but these are like disposable satellites. They they go into orbit for three to five years. It's the same with SpaceX's Starlink satellites. So you you put them up, they do their job for three to five years, they come back and burn up on their way back on their reentry into the Earth, and then you send up their replacements with more modern imaging communication systems in in their stead. Do you worry at all? Do you think about like the amount of stuff that is being used and or is is now sort of floating around in orbit? Yeah, I mean, the reentry stuff is less worrying to me than as we go from these 5,000 satellites to 200,000, exactly what happens up there. I mean, you know, not to make a horrible pun, I mean, it is space and there's lots of space and there's lots of room up there, but it takes serious management for these things. There's already a startup called Leo Labs, which is a small company in Silicon Valley that tracks all of these objects moving in space. The satellites talk to each other and are issued commands to kind of dodge each other in space. And, you know, there are regulatory bodies, or at least the U.S. has had federal agencies that do this kind of tracking before. But commercial space has moved so fast that really a company like Leo Labs is much better at it now and sort of like our collective... Um, Future in space is hinging on on how how well all these companies do at this. There is a moment in your book where William Spencer Marshall, the, the founder of Planet Labs, is basically laughed out of a meeting at NASA because of, of what he said he could do with his little satellites. And this feels a bit like a through line in in your book that there are people who have these like weird ideas and that maybe the entrenched government or aerospace industries think they're ridiculous but now are either respecting them or working with them and i wonder how these two interests are are going to fuse together in the future are they going to be able to to work together don't they sort of have to at this point they have to work together to degree because there is still a lot of uh, military and government funding that goes into all this. I think NASA, as we know it, is sort of archaic. It's just a big government contractor at this point? Or, or, or money, money doling machine to contractors, maybe? There's parts of NASA that are wonderful, and there's people who, who get it and are working on these new things. Then there's a whole chunk of NASA that's tied to the way things were always done. They just spent $50 billion on a rocket that is the equivalent of, of things SpaceX is working on. And it was many, many, many years late, tens of billions of dollars over budget. And we don't really need it now mm. because we have SpaceX and other rockets coming. And, you know, I think NASA would be much better served to give up 
on all these things that plenty of companies are working on and start putting its focus back on things like deep space, things like space habitats, you know, areas where it can really contribute. But there's senators who uh, get donations from places like Lockheed Martin and Boeing who really don't want that to happen. What does the next few years look like, do you think? Well, I would urge people to read my book because they should know, they should buckle up because <laughs> it's about to get real weird. You know, we we very recently were on a, lived in a world where like each country set up about one rocket a month. SpaceX is sending up rockets like once every three three days right now, sometimes two in, in one day. And Rocket Lab is getting very close to doing multiple launches a week. So this is a future where, again, no idea if this plays out over the long term, but we are going to make a go of having rockets going off every day all over the world, taking up thousands upon thousands of satellites and building this new computing infrastructure overhead. And this is going to happen. Well, I guess one of the reasons I'm asking you is that there's like, this sort of image in your book of some of this stuff coming together in a kind of crazy way, like Peter Beck, like like going to the hardware store to get parts and this quality of like passionate weirdo. And, and so I wonder how you move from passionate weirdo to I run a public company now and we are part of a satellite infrastructure, like how that path is going to shake out. I think this transition's already happening, and, and for better or worse, we're seeing the passionate weirdos giving way to to <laughs> hedge funds and, and people with money who just see this very much as a, as a business exercise. The industry's also maturing a lot. Over the last 20 years, if you wanted to be a rocket company, you had to make your engines, make the rocket body, make all these parts yourself. Now there's companies, there's a startup called Ursa Major. It's basically an engine supplier to rocket startups. Um, companies like Rocket Lab make 90% of, of a satellite for their customers, and the customers just come and stick on their scientific equipment or their fancy camera. Hmm. And so, you know, this is, it's totally like the in the early PC days when you saw these apples that all had to be like cobbled together by hand and then IBM came along. That's sort of where we're at and we're about to enter the phase of like, you know, Dell and Compaq and Hewlett Packard having these machines shipped by the millions that are all quite similar and, and made by component makers like Intel um, at the heart. And so it, it, it's this industry that is quickly transforming. I mean, this is why I called it When the Heavens Went on Sale. This is like a business now. It's a business with almost no regulation. Right now, there is a ban on regulating private rockets, but it's set to expire this year, which means a lot of these companies will be spending time and probably money in D.C. Not that they weren't already. Peter Beck had to spend over a year going back and forth to Washington, meeting with Obama to, even though New Zealand's in the Five Eyes Allies group, uh, had to get approval from the U.S. government to exist, more or less, because the U.S. didn't love the idea of, of somebody else developing something that's the equivalent of an ICBM. Hmm. I argue in the book that this is also getting quite antiquated, because again, this 
high school kid, <laughs> you know, made this made this thing. And, and Peter Beck might be one in in a billion, but if you have someone, he did it all by reading books and and looking at like NASA documentation on the internet. So it's not out of the question that somebody in some other country could do this. And and I think this is just the reality we have to accept. And there's pros to this. I mean, space was the domain of about five governments who did what they wanted and sort of kept everyone else out. And and now this is being democratized and other countries can become spacefaring nations. I mean, New Zealand is about five or six million people and it is, is after the United States sort of has the like dominant commercial space industry now. I think your description of like Peter Beck's hometown is like down these long roads far away from anything. It's like way down on the on the southern end of the country. It's as close as you can get to Antarctica. Invercargill is where he grew up. And uh, it's just like, a, it looks like a small English town from the 1850s. I don't want to ma- draw too like overt of a parallel, but there is a sort of Silicon Valley vibe to some of these companies. And and I don't know if that's kind of the like quote unquote disruptor spirit or if it is also now that you have venture capitalists and other people saying, hey, we can make a lot of money by investing in these companies. But I wonder what you make of the of the parallel between sort of early tech days and commercial space. This is exactly what's happening is, is Silicon Valley, whether it's just in the actual location or if you're talking about Los Angeles where there's a lot of these companies or New Zealand or, or wherever, this mindset has now taken hold of, of this technology, this, this new place. I mean, it's hard to avoid some of these comparisons, but this, this is like a new territory to conquer and we kind of know what humans do when things like that arrive and and i think there's a lot this book is not um it's not like an anti-capitalist screed by any stretch so much of this is is incredibly exciting i think it will be hugely beneficial to the planet in many many ways um i also think this is inevitable we are now in a race and it involves countries and companies and this is a new area to control and dominate. And and again, I kind of think we know how this usually plays out. <laughs> Does that worry you? Parts of it worry me. So far, what's been going on is there's a lot of case to be made that it's quite idealistic. I really think if we are to solve climate change or tackle it in a real way, the stuff that planet's building, I, I see no other option than actually being able to put metrics around these things and see what's happening on the planet. So I think that's fantastic. I think the space internet, you can tell that when high-speed internet arrives in countries, it immediately ups education levels and, and economic opportunity. So all of that to me is is quite obvious and, and probably quite good. Um, I think the, the bigger picture is... is honestly, it's anybody's guess as to exactly how this plays out. I hope we would learn some lessons from things we've done in the past and and do it a bit better up there. Ashley Vance, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you. Ashley Vance is a reporter for Bloomberg. He's also the author of When the Heavens Went on Sale. You should check it out. 
And that is it for our show today. What Next TBD is produced by Evan Campbell. Our show is edited by Mia Armstrong-Lopez. Alicia Montgomery is vice president of audio for Slate. TBD is part of the larger What Next family, and we're also part of Future Tense, a partnership of Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. And if you are a fan of the show, I have a request for you. Join Slate Plus. Just head on over to slate.com slash whatnextplus to sign up. You will get all your Slate podcasts ad-free. All right, we'll be back next week with more episodes. I'm Lizzie O'Leary. Thanks for listening. Save big money on everything for your next project at Menards. Spring is here making it the perfect time for outdoor projects. Suncast storage sheds are an excellent solution for protecting outdoor lawn and gardening tools. They're easy to assemble, and the all-weather construction provides water resistance and UV protection. Save big on Suncast storage sheds. View our selection of Suncast products today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big.